Welcome. Thanks for coming on a hot day and joining me here. So I think what we're going to do um, is sit for maybe 20, 30 minutes. I'll guide a bit and leave some space for just uh, silence as well. And um, yeah, so feel free to find a posture that's relaxed yet alert. Just settling into the body. We're just going to take a moment to connect with the feeling in the body and the natural flow of whatever's happening for us this moment. So here we're just preparing the body and mind to meditate. Preparing it by, instead of just jumping right into doing, just being. So just inviting you to be with whatever is up for you right now, whatever energies, sensations, moods, emotions that you can feel within the body and just being with those without an agenda. Just with a sense of ease, letting yourself relax. Letting yourself just come into a deeper connection with the world of feeling, what we can sense in the physical body. Here there's nothing to do, no one to be. Just connecting with the natural flow of whatever's happening for us right now. Whether that's something pleasant or unpleasant, just letting it be. So often we come to meditation practice with a really heavy load of trying to do something or to attain something, to maybe shift our mood. And here, whatever mood you're in is okay. There's no need to shift it, no need to alter it, just simply coming into contact with it, letting the body relax.
So when we meet the body and world of feeling, just with this sense of non-judgment and the kindness of our presence and awareness. We give an opportunity for what's built up throughout the day or week to just loosen on its own. We often have this expression in the Tibetan tradition of like a snake that's knotted untying itself. So here, when our body becomes knotted, when we tense up, when there's stress and overwhelm that builds up in the body, sometimes when we just give it a chance to exist, we let go of the resistance towards it, things can open up. And we start to find a sense of calm and ease within the body. And really this calm and ease is the base we need to cultivate states of concentration, states of deeper awareness and insight. As I'm sure many of us in this room can attest to, when there's not calmness and ease, like we're running and chasing after something the whole entire meditation period. Fighting with the thinking mind, fighting with distraction. Instead of just giving the body what it needs right now, which is just a bit of ease and relaxation, just a letting be. And if you don't find that in this moment, that's perfectly fine too. but we're offering an opportunity to just be, sit with the body, feel. So if you notice yourself taking deep breaths or getting a little sleepy during this, that's okay, that's a good sign. It means things are starting to settle. We're allowing some space and ease to come into the body. It's a little bit like if we've been tensing up our fist all day long, when we let go of that tension, there's a little bit of soreness there. The soreness is not a problem in itself, just a result of releasing that tension and the body auto-correcting itself. So again, it's part of this natural flow we're just connecting with. 
Just allowing what's there to be what it is, without the overlay of a narrative or story. from a sense of ease and relaxation in the body. We're going to let our eyes just gently open halfway or fully open if you meditate that way. If you meditate normally with them closed, it's also fine to leave the eyes closed. But we're going to begin to connect with a knowing quality within the mind. A sense of presence that rests on that calmness or relaxation in the body. So if you'd like, you can connect your attention and present moment awareness to the breath, either watching the breath at the tip of your nose as the air enters and exits, or watching at the belly as your belly expands and contracts. Now, shifting the practice from just letting the body be, letting a calmness come out on its own. Now cultivating a present moment awareness on the basis of calm, where calm meets the clarity or knowingness within the mind. And when we place our knowingness or when we place our awareness on the breath, we just simply maintain a present, calm clarity, moving from each moment to the next. And if narratives and thoughts come to interrupt that process, no problem. We just gently ignore them, coming back to the breath. We know how to maintain this clear present moment awareness based on calmness in the body. Thoughts will come, they'll arise, and they'll leave on their own accord. Therefore, our meditation practice doesn't have to turn into a battle or fight with the thinking mind. There's no job we're trying to accomplish here, necessarily. There's no one we have to be. There's no sense of perfectionism we have to attain. Just simply showing up, maintaining this calm, clear presence. 
if you need to come back to the body at any point, just to find that ease and relaxation again, go ahead. And then, again, find presence and awareness with the breath as an object.
So in the next few breaths, we'll begin to transition our practice from the formal session to the post-meditation. So letting this present moment awareness we've been cultivating on the basis of calmness in the body. Let's begin to meet more and more of our environment. Ultimately, meditation is not about shutting out what's around us, but it's rather in re-engaging with it in a more skillful, compassionate way. So within our meditation posture and within this awareness, we're just going to let our eyes gently open and without looking around the room, just coming into contact with our environment. The meditation is still happening. Just being with our experience, any sounds around us, the feeling of the air hitting our skin. The colors around us. Any sensations in the body. Any thought movement in the mind, just bearing witness. Just bridging our formal practice back out into our evening. When you're ready, feel free to move or look around the room, just letting your awareness be present connecting with calmness in the body, connecting with this luminous clarity in the mind, type of knowingness or awareness. Just let that connect with more and more of your environment around you as you move. have a good nap that's usually <laughs> it's hot enough out <laughs> so welcome um, just a few quick announcements this is a Donna based class so um, on your way out if you feel like dropping uh, some donations the jar I guess is over here uh, I think it's ten dollars suggested and uh, yeah so prompted by Josh Gorda I <laughs> I decided to 
give a talk tonight on uh, letting go of self-obsession. <laughs> uh, when Josh, uh, we were hanging out the other day, and when he said it to me, I thought, uh-oh. Like, I don't want to give a talk on that, <laughs> you know? I've thought about it before and, um, you know, thought about it in the context of what I would say, uh, what, how it might be appropriate for us culturally and sort of what we go through. And um, I think it's a touchy subject, no? I mean, yeah, I think it's kind of touchy because we don't like the, I mean, in a sense, like, we probably all came here thinking, oh, yeah, like, he's talking about someone else, like, you know? I'm not self-obsessed. We're just gonna have a talk about all those a-holes outside of this room, right? And, because um, it's kind of a strong word when we say, when, when I use the word self-obsessed. And so maybe I have to define what I mean by that, yeah? And in a sense, I think I'm using it quite loosely. I'm using it also to represent that um, I, we're all self-obsessed in certain ways. I mean, how could we not be? We, you know, when, when something when someone run, you know, tries to burn us with fire, we, we turn the other way. In a sense, that's kind of a self-obsession. Maybe not in, in, the, in the way I'm gonna talk about it tonight, but in a sense that uh, we have a self that we wanna protect. We have a self, a sense of me or I, that we want to be happy. We don't wanna experience suffering. And there's nothing wrong with that. So this part of self uh, sort of, uh, uh, Maybe not obsession is the wrong word, but self-preservation um, is the right word. It's a healthy thing. We need that, right? It's part of our biology. But what's happening, and I, and I think sort of the main subject I wanted to talk about is when this becomes, especially in, in the modern world, when this becomes twisted and when, when it turns away from just self-preservation and into this more self-obsessed form, that really doesn't help us. You know, the, the whole idea here is we have to question is when I'm only thinking about me and that's my primary concern in a situation is that actually providing happiness for me is that giving me well-being is that actually providing what I want ultimately and I think this this is not an easy question to answer right it's the main one I want to ask tonight but I kind of want to leave it up as an open question um, it's also sensitive because this meets and intersects with where a lot of us do need some, you know, healthy self-care and a sense of well-being. And these days, we're running into less and less of that and less opportunities for finding that genuine uh, well-being within ourselves. whatever that means. For me, well-being is just how I define it. It's a spectrum of wellness, right? A spectrum of just feeling okay with ourselves. And that changes, that shifts. We move into moments of sadness and dis-ease. But in general, we have an okayness with inside. So, all in all, I think this comes down to, from a Buddhist path perspective, of happiness and dissatisfaction, or the question of when we're engaging throughout our days, when we're engaging throughout our life. I often ask this question you know, every few weeks to myself, is there anything I'm doing where I'm not motivated by some kind of wish for pleasure or happiness, right? Even if it's just really momentary and just getting a the smoothie just right, you know, so it's, it's exactly how I want it, right? And so that's just a natural human thing. I don't know if I would put that under the category of self-obsession. I guess you kind of could, but it's just a natural human quality we all seek. We all want happiness. We all want to avoid suffering. 
So if we really look carefully and we ask this question often, we see there's not very many actions that we do, even when we're talking about relational ones. Those are also with uh, a sense of what am I getting out of this in mind, right? Now, that's not always a bad thing. Uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama, he often says, if we're going to be selfish, let's have like a, let's have a really uh, smart selfishness, which is acting out of, you know, being compassionate, trying to help others, trying to get out of our own self-obsession. And he said, this is kind of a smart selfishness. Because why is it selfish? Because we also get something out of it, right? I'm sure a lot of you can attest the moments where we are like genuinely happy and joyful to serve another, to help another, it's really uplifting for our lives. And a lot of people become addicted to that. Now, here's where we're gonna get into the complications of self-obsession. That can also become self-obsession. You see what I'm saying? Right? It can become an addiction to the high of helping people, right? Where again, it may be lacking our own needs in the situation. So this is a tricky subject. It's not always so clear. Also, it's really hard to judge others because we might see others where, uh, you know, on in the entertainment industry or whatever, where they seem completely self-obsessed. But we really don't know who that person is. We don't know what they do in their, you know, non-public time. Right? They could be quite an amazing, simple person. We don't know. So. In general, the Buddhist path really asks us to question whether our ultimate happiness comes from merely thinking about only our needs, right? But again, where this intersects is there are some basic needs that we just need met. And when those aren't getting met, it becomes really tricky to root out where self-obsession is causing us harm, right? Because again, we can move into this idea uh, you know, a lot of people like to call people bodhisattvas nowadays on the internet. <laughs> and uh, maybe not a lot, but in Buddhist, <laughs> you know, Facebook pages that I frequent, people say, oh, what a bodhisattva. And I'm like, maybe, you know, because a bodhisattva is a person who actually has a, a deep sense of realization of emptiness. And then they act out of compassion of that. So we always merge in the Buddhist path wisdom with activity. Otherwise, uh, an activity can actually be harmful, but look positive. Right? There's many circumstances of this we see around the world where you know, we try to benefit, but we really don't know how. I mean, Russell Brand, out of all people, uh, though he's looking, looking more, more and more like a bodhisattva these days, Russell Brand was talking about this in a really direct experience he had, which I thought was a good example, where he went and um, tried to help like, someone who's homeless in LA. You heard this on podcast? Yeah, it was on maybe Sam Harris or some podcast. And, um, and he tried to help this homeless guy, and he tell me if I get the story wrong, but basically it just turned into this bigger thing where he didn't realize what he was taking on because what the person really needed was medical care, was all kinds of other, you know, housing obviously, uh, clothes, like different things. So just merely buying the person food or giving him a dollar didn't really do that much. I mean, it did a little bit for the person, but in the bigger scheme of things. And so it, he really, did, he didn't eventually, t- he didn't take him home, right? But the idea was he kind of flirted with that. Yeah, this idea of like, if I really want to take responsibility for this person's well-being, I would fully help them, right? And also this kind of pressure on some of us is also a little bit not so skillful. Meaning like, if we put that pressure that we're not a good person unless we do something like that, that's a little funny too. So anyways, we're kind of in this bind. Uh, I'm calling it this burden of self-obsession. You know, where 
for me, when I notice, when I get more and more reified and sort of uh, cocooning into my own experience, the more and more suffering I experience. Not only am I causing harm and not sort of being so skillful in my speech and communication with others around me, but also I'm not happy, yeah? You know, and so I'm not agreeable with others, I'm also not happy. So what do we do when this happens? I think this is the trick, because it's like, it's this spiral down, where when we notice that, we're not happy, but at the same time, it's like we're spiraling down, 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 and then our, our self-esteem starts to tank, right? Our, our own worth starts to tank, and that's not so good, not so healthy, right? So one step, and I'm not gonna talk about so much tonight, because I talked about it more uh, last talk, but we do need some basic practices and, and, and sort of ways of coming into more well-being. And the way I usually frame this is coming into a sense of okayness in the body that was always there, that never left. It's just been hiding. And it gets sort of reduced and diminished by modern predicaments we're in, like the way we're educated, the way everything is commodified within uh, a lot of our interactions these days. And so there's a sense of hollowness that a lot of us walk around with, myself included. And then this hollowness never gets filled, that just keeps getting empty the more we try to throw at it materially. So I'm not gonna talk about the practice so much, but I work in my one-to-one -one work with people on a practice of coming into an, an embodied uh, connection with feeling and emotion and working especially with that sense of hollowness to actually heal it. And so these are the type, that kind of practice and others that really develop a very grounded sense of embodied well-being um, and connection can be extremely positive. And I would not call self-obsession. I would call that positive self-care. Of course, we all know that there's elements of self-care that are also very self-obsessed, right? Because it all moves into this machine of hyper-individualism that we're all stuck in, you know? Where it's promoted, right? So, so if, if we're honest, right, we can look around us. It's not you know, where the blame doesn't have to always go onto our shoulders, the burden always onto our shoulders, we can see it's systemic as well. Where we're not only marketed self-obsession, we're also like, uh, what do you call it? Um, mm, yeah, rewarded. We're rewarded for it in our jobs, in, in certain circles, depending on who our friends are, who our social circles are. That's really dangerous, right? Because it's sort of the function is the more self-obsessed we come, the more unhappy we become, but we're incentivized to do it, right? Now, I could be wrong, so this is something we all have to look at in our life. Um, I've found in my case, it's, it's very much like that. As a meditation teacher these days, we're completely incentivized uh, to be as self-obsessed as possible in order to supposedly like, serve others or reach others, you know? It's very slippery slope, extremely slippery. So what do we do? So, first of all, I think it's coming into this quality of universal compassion and responsibility, right? And a universal compassion, the way we express it in the Buddhist path, is something that's beyond just our close ones or beyond those who we want to like. It also includes those we dislike. It includes those we don't know. And this is really hard, right? Because right away, we come up against our own judgment. We come up against our own... Uh, yes, self-obsession with who we think is worthy of our love, who we think is worthy of our care, who we think is worthy of our compassion. I can think of you know, some popular figures right now that you know, in certain rooms, the moment you bring up 
their name, it's just like a, you know, completely polarizing, right? Uh, it's hard to have a conversation about someone who's just a human being who could be extremely uh, uh, full of a lot of faults and have a lot of problems and also dangerous, but it doesn't discount that they're a person wanting happiness. So part of this is just a recognition of a wider universal compassion, meaning, and compassion here meaning that we start to recognize we are not unique in our suffering. We are not unique in the challenges we go through as a human being. We start to see that that becomes reflected in others. We start to see that others go through very similar, if not the same things we do. And so right away in that thought, like I'm guessing right now, if you're contemplating on this, which I hope you are, right away, you feel a little bit of freedom in that. Like I'm talking about it right now and I'm trying to feel it as I'm talking about it. I feel a little bit of freedom. Why? Because my self-obsessions just loosen, just a teeny bit, right? So again, pinpointing what the self-obsession is, this is essentially what we're talking about. Another word we use, and again, this is strong language, so, so take it with a grain of salt, but it's traditional Buddhist language of um, like a self-centered cherishing type of feeling. And what, we're, what the Buddhist path is actually talking about is a feeling. It's not just talking about a thought or an ideology. It's an actual feeling. So when we do this next practice I'm gonna introduce, you'll see as things shift and open up, there's a quality of spaciousness that happens. There's a quality uh, as a possibility. There's a quality of this self-obsession loosening over time as we practice, right? And this is really where meditation serves us. These are the long-term benefits of what we are looking for from meditation. So traditionally what we do say is we use as a clue when our self-obsession is loosening a little bit, it means our meditation practice is going in the right direction. So a lot of people ask me, you know, they struggle when, I, when I'm working with students or one-to-one -one mentees, people struggle a lot with, am I making progress? Is this working? Am I doing this right? You know? And it depends on what the goal is, right? If we just want some stress relief and relaxation, that's pretty obvious, I think. You know, we, we, that's not hard to get either, we can get that. But if we want more further progress and more long-term effects of meditation, I usually say, well, how are you, are you more at ease? Are you more, uh, are you, you know, more patient? Are you, is your self-obsession, you know, relaxing, right? Are you more available to others? Now that's hard to judge sometimes because we all have like good and bad days. And uh, for me, uh, uh, New York City is like, I feel like I have like one week of emotions within a day in this place, where in other places it's not like that. It's just like, oh, there's anger again. Oh, I haven't seen you in a while. And it's like New York, it's like every 20 minutes. So anyways, um, so it starts with this, this recognition um, that others wish for happiness, even, when the moment, even in the moments where it's really hard to see that they wish for that, even when, it, when it's hard to see that they deserve that as a human being. I'm not saying they deserve that as a reward for bad or destructive behavior, but just because they're born, because they're a human being. And this is a little bit tricky to understand. In Buddhism, we talk about this in the sense of uh, a quality of basic goodness or an inherent goodness that we're all born with, that's not constructed, it's not given by any kind of creator deity, it's just part of our sentience. Uh, from, a, from a Buddhist path perspective. And so because of this, there's a basic value of each human being. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, one quote I heard from a teacher recently, which is very heartening, and it's kind of 
this is one of my aspirations for my life. He said that when a, when a, a free being, what we call a Buddha, an awakened being, sees a sentient being, they don't see a sentient being, they see a Buddha, right? So they don't see like a pitiful person, they see someone who has the potential for awakening. And that's a really beautiful thing. Just imagine what it would be like to walk around and not only see ourselves like that, but also see others like that, right? And their potential rather than their flaws. Um, this is one of my aspirations, because I usually see people's flaws, so it's hard work for me. So this also comes in recognizing ourselves in another, right? Putting ourselves in the shoes of another. Of course, like practices of empathy, practices of connecting with others. So all of this, what I'm saying, we don't have to expect that this is just automatic, that it's just going to be here. And if we don't have it, we're screwed up or our, our parents screwed us up <laughs> or we did too much acid or whatever the case is, you know, uh, it's not true. The truth is it can be trained, it can be habituated, right? So all of what I'm talking about, it's not that you're in one category or another. You're either self-obsessed and screwed or you're, or you're less self-obsessed than an enlightened one. It's not like that. It's all changeable and shiftable, right? That's the good news. So what I wanted to share with you tonight um, is a practice uh, we call Tonglen in Tibetan. So probably some of you have heard of it. Um, I don't teach it that much, and the reason being uh, because I found the popularized form of it to uh, water it down, and it reduces the actual, it can be kind of like a preliminary and a useful one, but often it gets misunderstood into like a feel-good practice, like, oh, I'll just take in all this stuff and send this all out, and then I feel better. That's not really what Tonglen is about. Um, there was an interview with uh, this wonderful nun. You can go look it up. It's on Buddhist Door. It's a website. It's with uh, Tenzin Palmo, who's uh, probably one of the more senior Western Tibetan Buddhist nuns. Um, she did about nine years of retreat. There's a book called, um, was it, Turn? Uh, it's about, it has a cave in the title because she stayed in a cave for nine years. She's British. Anyways, she was kind of saying, the Buddhist path is actually meant to make us uncomfortable at a certain point. And that's a strong statement, and we have to understand why she would say something like that. But here, that uncomfort is not just like, oh, just feel uncomfortable, and then that's it. Or, you know, <laughs> you know there's no reason for that uncomfort. The uncomfort is because life is uncomfortable. And when we choose to face it, honestly, we come into contact with that. And that means we're becoming more real. We're, we're ceasing from turning a blind eye with uh, a lot of the privilege we're given these days. And we're looking directly at how things are. Now, we have to find ways to do that through meditation that allow our heart to break open during those circumstances, but not to break down. So the purpose of the path is not to break down the heart, but rather to break it open. So this practice of Tonglen is really like that. So it translates mostly as like giving and taking, or you know, and it comes from a greater corpus of teachings on um, mm, lojong or mind training, which have to do with exchanging oneself for another. Now these are were originally very secret teachings. They weren't meant for public consumption because they're difficult to do, and so some people might get the wrong idea. And as we see nowadays, in my shitty opinion, uh, <laughs> uh, we see a lot of watered down forms forms of this. 
So I'm going to give you the, try to give you the real Tonglen, but you know, in stages, and then you can, of course, try to access it in, what, in whatever way is useful to you right now. So essentially what we're doing is we're, I'm just going to say a little bit and then we'll practice it. I'll guide us through something. Essentially what we're doing is we're doing the very thing we would never want to do, which is take on suffering, right? And we're doing this, you know, that's the first thing. The second thing, we're doing the very th the second thing we'd never want to do, which is give away everything good that we like, right? So who wants to do that? It sounds insane, actually, when you think about it. But when you, un <laughs> I like the look on your face. No, <laughs> was well, there no, I was just thinking that you're not, when I, uh, this could be part of the question later, but, but like it's a, not a, you're not, it's a reusable good. Like the good you're giving yeah. doesn't deplete. No, no, no. That's how I, yeah, yeah. yeah, the good is, it's all imagined, right. right? But we're still imagining it and trying to make it real. Right. So even on an imagined level, we would think, why would I want to do that? Right. And so we really have to understand the construct here of Tong Len is meant to reduce the self-obsession. That is a burden, right? So first we have to recognize, that's why I'm giving this whole you know, preliminary talk on it. First we have to recognize, which is not easy, I'll, I'll give you that. So maybe some of you in this room, you're gonna walk away tonight wondering, hmm, I wonder what, like how self-obsession shows up in my life. That's a really good question and be gentle with yourself. And I would say use that as an open prompt to investigate that. Because until we come to a conclusion of where our own self-interest is harming ourselves and others, it'll, it, it's, it's not that easy to practice Tonglen because we're taking right onto ourselves, onto that self-obsession, essentially trying to uh, explode <laughs> that self-obsession, right? Because it's not real from a Buddhist perspective. It's actually not true. And that gets into more deeper teachings on the nature of reality. But Tonglen also has this amazing piece where it's not just about, it's not about belittling ourselves, right? I wanna be very clear about that. This is based on a very, a very sense of okayness on our own basic goodness, that that's just there. So we're not destroying that at all. But what we are destroying is this false sense of self that is the burden in this case. So it's sort of like that enemy we never see or that, that uh, sort of scoundrel, as one Buddhist teacher put it, we never see. And it's internal, but be we never see it because the habit is so strong to repeat this mantra again and again and again of it's all about me, right? Again, like a mantra every day. And this is hard to hear, you know? It's kind of strong words in this part of Buddhism. But it's very, very worthwhile if we decide to look at it. But like I said, when you're looking at these questions, you have to do it in a very gentle way, especially if we know we have some emotional wounding to work with. Like for instance, I myself had huge problems of low self-worth most of my life, as well as you know, this hollowness I was talking about, which is just also something culturally a lot of us share. So until I was able to heal some of my issues with that, it, it, Tonglen didn't work so well. It always, it just made me kind of uh, mm, dislike myself, <laughs> you know? So it, we have to be careful here, yeah. Uh, just quickly, the, the Tonglen for the self, is that like a, a Western practice? Yeah, so that's a good, um, we're gonna do it tonight, but it, yeah, so, He's asking if you're doing Tonglen for yourself, like what we would normally do is we would take in our future suffering, like the headache we might get tomorrow or the heat we're gonna feel tomorrow, and then we send ourselves cooling air or whatever. 
So that is not traditionally in the practice, but it can be a super useful step, right? So it's, it, it might be the place most of us need to start, which is first working with ourself. But again, it's not working with the self-obsessed part of ourself. It's working with the actual fundamental need there, which is recognizing our value and worth. So that's what I'm emphasizing here, right? So there is a difference. Value and worth are not part of self-obsession. Is this clear, more or less, yeah? Make sense, Brett? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just squinting. No, no, no. I won't. I won't judge your facial expressions. That there's always a doubt. So, let's practice a little bit, and we'll see how it goes. We're not going to go too far in the deep end. We're going to mostly work with ourselves first, and then we're going to work with um, uh, someone close to us. Yeah. So, just finding a posture that's relaxed yet alert. We're just going to take a moment to rest in a state of mind that's open, loose, and relaxed, similar to how we started our practice earlier, just coming into a sense of the body. And if you'd like, you can also form a very gentle intention that the reason we're doing this practice is because we want to see where real happiness lies. We want to lay down the falsities of where so-called happiness, but actually this burden being stuck or cocooned in our own egos limits that. And that's in connection with all others. So we imagine our family, friends, partners, all around us, co-workers. We connect our own wish for well-being an awakening in with our wish for them to also have that. And then just rest in the body. Just resting in a sense of spaciousness, openness. We're going to start just by thinking of maybe a future anxiety we've had related to our own life. Maybe a difficult job interview we have to have or a difficult conversation with a friend or partner. Something as simple as the heat we're going to have to face in 90 degree weather tomorrow. Or all of the wonderful, beautiful teenagers on our block lighting fireworks all night in a few days, waking me up. Whatever you'd like to imagine that's going to happen to you in this next week that you know is going to happen. Coming into our own sense of value, whether we have a deep feeling of that resonating in the body or just the concept that we can arise, Us coming into our own inner worth and value. 
Now here, not placing the value on what we do, but how we show up for ourselves and others in the world. And just this basic idea that inner freedom is possible. We can see when we meditate, our adverse reactions, disturbing states of mind reduce. So that's a sign we have this own, we have our own inner basic goodness or Buddha nature. That's a sign of that. So this is a very profound idea. Let's see if we can come into some contact with that, even remembering a mood or a, an experience where we felt really joyful, relaxed, at ease. Just coming into a sense of value of ourselves beyond the limits of the ego, the limits of self-obsession. So with this value, we're going to mount on the breath, taking in our future suffering this week, whatever that is, imagining that as darkly colored smoke, or just imagining it as a feeling or a texture. And on the inhale, we're going to courageously take that in, not taking that in into reducing our value, but taking it in with the courage of transforming, exchanging this dissatisfaction or suffering. And as we breathe out, we also give to ourselves all of our own goodness, well-being, worth, inner value, So what we mount on the breath here is also a process of care as we breathe out, love, connection, goodness to ourself. And as we take in our own suffering, a type of compassion, being able to bear witness and hold that experience, even if it's painful. doesn't mean we have to like it, just means we're willing to face it. as you take in the future suffering on the inhale, you imagine completely dissolves as you give. So there's also a disillusion happening here, recognizing the dissatisfaction, pain or suffering as changeable, impermanent. And same with what we're giving, all of the care and goodness. 
It also has no true existence, but it has a function, an activity, a benefit. Having practiced this a bit, we're now going to imagine in front of us a dear one, someone who we cherish and love in our life, a partner, a friend, a parent. And now we put ourselves in their shoes, imagining the future suffering they might have to experience. And there's some we definitely know they have to experience, like sickness, eventually having to die. But we could also imagine something very personal here. And so reflecting on that future pain they may have to go through, we directly act with a wish that they may be free from that. And as we do that, we take that suffering on, mounting it on the breath, imagining it like a texture. Breathing in feelings of heat or heaviness or maybe even darkness. And when we breathe out, with all of our love and care, we offer them our own goodness, our own qualities, wealth, joy. And as our own goodness, qualities fill them, we watch their demeanor change, their body fill with light. And as Brett brought up, it does not diminish our own goodness as well. It's not like we're giving away everything and it, we're left with nothing, our own body enhances as well. Same as we breathe in. All of this we take in, transforms as we breathe out. So as we take in their future suffering, wishing them free from that suffering, we also imagine what that must feel like for them to be free of that burden. So this is a little bit scary. It's also challenging. You may notice some fear coming up, especially if you're taking in someone's disease or pain that you really don't want. And we're not taking it literally. This is a practice using the imagination. But what we're emphasizing is the texture and flavor of taking that in and also the relief and that our dear one is free from this. So especially reflect on that. And notice the fear that comes up for you. Don't dwell in that, but notice that. And then everything transforms into a bright light, which you send out back to them, offering all of your care, warmth, love, goodness. You can even breathe out feelings of coolness, brightness, and light, like a sense of freshness. 
relating positive energy. And we're doing this through all the pores of our body, both on the in-breath, taking in the pain, and on the out-breath, giving goodness. And just before we close the practice, we're going to imagine all others who are experiencing something similar. So if we imagine a certain predicament our dear one is in or will be in, that's a possibility for them. We imagine now all the beings who will be in a similar predicament surrounding them. So if the person has breast cancer or another type of illness that requires a lot of medical care and anxiety and fear. We imagine all the others who have to go through that. This is where our compassion starts to open up into a universal responsibility beyond just those who reciprocate our love. Just one time we'll breathe in through our pores they become completely free of all that suffering connected with that, whatever you're imagining. Then that transforms into bright light, which we send out through our pores, filling them with goodness, care, love. Anything they might need. letting the practice go, we'll just come back into the body for a moment, noticing what's shifted for us, noticing any space that may have opened up. Also, this practice can sometimes produce anxiety if that came up for you. Just remind yourself now that we're using the imagination. Come back into a sense of just letting the body flow naturally, any energies, feelings, sensations, or moods. When you're ready, feel free to open your eyes, coming back into the room. Okay. So that was an express Tonglen, <laughs> because I wanted to leave a few minutes for Q&A. But um, it's pretty, it's not an easy practice, I don't know. I just even was doing it now, and maybe because when you're in the teacher seat, um, you kind of do it more intensely. Uh, but that was, yeah, it's quite powerful. Did anybody find a shift from it, even just briefly in the brief moment we did it? Yeah? All right, so <laughs> any questions? Anything up for you? Doubts, concerns, inspirations? confusion.
opposed to like the, the focus of I'm turning it into my story again. <laughs> no, no, no. We have no choice. Story, it's not the story of Fred as much as like a human, my human capacity. Yeah. So I don't. I enjoy like it feels like a sense of agent, like a seed of agency of sorts. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think that's that's a positive sign because something's loosening, yeah. where it's giving us efficacy, right? And and that matters. And I think some people would, would doubt saying like, well, why sit on a cushion and do this? Why not just go out in the world and do this? And to some, they have a point in, in one way, but also a lot of us are neophytes and we will get burnt out if we try to do this. We'll probably also die or something really bad will happen. Meaning, you know, you try to go out there and take on someone's, you know, tuberculosis or something, you're gonna regret it. Right? <laughs> You're probably going to regret it. But if you imagine it first, maybe one day you can. Not saying you should, but yeah. <laughs> Anyways, there's a lot of stories like this in Tibet. Some people often wonder, oh, if I do this, am I actually taking it on? No. But there are stories of great yogis doing that kind of thing. I don't know, though. There's one story they like to tell of like um, a really... Uh, master of this practice he could like feel the suffering of other people so like like actually feel it so someone threw like a rock at a dog when he was teaching and then he screamed and they were like this guy is way too much like they thought he was acting but when they pulled up his shirt he had a welt weird things like that but anyways we're not there yet so don't worry <laughs> How, uh, anybody else what came up for you Tough material? Oh, yeah? Okay. April? I think um, all we have is our perception, you know? So like we never have someone else's experience in, in a sense. I mean, although we can have empathy and things like that. So it's good you're thinking like that in the sense of um, you're not making it a truth that that person is definitely in that state or that's definitely happening. But you can still use it like you did, which I think is good. I mean, you can use your perception, right? Because that's all we have, right? Because who knows, like someone who looks like a lot of people when they're, you know, I should say some people when they're going to die, they become extremely happy, like super like amazing people, right? And so they might look at us as, you know, you're, you're alive, but you're kind of you know, looking pretty pitiful. They might look at me and think that. 
And so it's, it's very relative, right, in that sense, where we may look at someone we think is suffering a lot, but they're much happier than we are on an, in an emotional sense, right? Maybe not physically, depending on the situation. But, um, but the pain part, I think, um, that's where we have to go like a little bit light and we can be gentle with the practice at first. You know, its intention is to draw out the self-obsession as, uh, and, and reduce it. And, and it does do that. But it's not, but what you point out is true, it's not comfortable, I think, in that process. That's why usually I don't teach this that much. It's, I feel like it is a bit more of an advanced practice, but um, it's super powerful, you know? A lot of people use it when there's a difficulty with someone or a certain situation, and that can really loosen it as well. Yeah, I was gonna say, besides just this, where we brought the feeling up now, I found it basically the most effective practice when there's a big emotion mm. that I can sit with it and really feel that. Like there's nothing, it's not really like a silver bullet, but it's pretty close. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just when the feelings are already there, it's where it's most effective for me. Yeah. And, and like any kind of feeling or? Strong emotion. Yeah. Wonderful, yeah, good. Yeah. Lisa, you had something? Yeah, um, you know, I, there's somebody in my life who's challenged to me. And it's really been in preparation of seeing this person. I practice this week, sort of, and also kind of in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, I hear, yeah, yeah that sounds like my, me on a daily basis. But, uh, you know, it's, the good news is you, you have an opportunity to try again, you know, because you recognize. And so I think that's, I mean, it sounds cheesy, because it is a little cheesy, but it, it's true in that, in that, like, what really counts is just showing up and, and again, and kind of having that perseverance of not, being willing to settle for like, oh, I failed. And actually the truth is you didn't fail, you tried, right? It's just, these things are super challenging sometimes, right? And so that's why this kind of practice of, of Tonglen are working to transform our, our own self-interest or self-obsession to like a wider universal compassion. It's a long process, you know? So we can't dwell on those small, uh, um, what, I wouldn't consider that a failure, but you know, on those small moments where we don't live up to how we want to be. So 
best is just acknowledge it, awesome, filed away, leave it, move on. You know, but acknowledging it is super key because otherwise then we don't grow either, right? We become kind of like a narcissist. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's just good, good to note, move on, keep going, keep trying. And doing this practice or practices like them do, do help over time, you know, because it's all the transformation we're having within the feeling where our own, that peace loosens. And you, we could feel it in the body when that happens. So we do, we do the practice until that happens. And then more. Yeah. Thanks. All right. We're a little over. So, oh, oh is it okay, everyone? Stay for two more minutes? Yeah? Okay. I just, I guess on that, on that, that exhale part of that, I really associated with this sort of sense of generosity. Yeah, exactly. It's like that's the feeling and thought. And, and then also, there was an association with something abundance in that, too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. No, that's the energy. To, that's what Brett was asking earlier. That's the energy to, energy to connect into because it's coming not from our materialistic self, idea of self, which is limited, actually. It's coming from something underneath that. That's a well that's inexhaustible. That's actually getting at what Bodhicitta is talking about. When we talk about the mind of awakening in, in Mayana Buddhism, it's this vast motivation to awaken all sentient beings. And there's no end to sentient beings. So it's this like trick. It's also talking about duality and subject-object there too. There's some tricks of talk about ultimate reality. But um, this is the energy of that. So when you tap in with that, you start to tap in with your own nature as well. So this practice is powerful in that wisdom and skillful means become more and more intertwined and indivisible the more we practice this. Yeah, Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So I think I will stop there. <laughs> I don't want to keep everyone too long.